Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is the HPP Podcast Editor, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with our editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. This is your host, Arden Castle. Today, I'm joined by Prashasti Patnagar and Sonia Kanzader, two authors of Investing Community Care is an Important Goal and Need for Eliminating Hepatitis C in the United States, an Abolitionist Perspective. They're going to help us explore the connections between community care and viral hepatitis C elimination. But before we get started, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and have them share where they're calling in from. So Prashasti, will you get us started? Of course. Hello, everyone, and thank you, Arden, for having us here today. My name is Prashasti Bhatnagar, and I am a law and public health postdoc scholar at the Kirvin Institute at Ohio State University and also a sociology PhD student. My work is centered around building care systems rooted in health justice, carceral and border abolition, some of which we will talk today, and liberation. And I'm calling today from Nashville, Tennessee. Hi, Arden. My name is Sonia Kinzader. Thanks again for having us. I am an adjunct professor at law at Georgetown University Law Center, and I am also the associate director of the Infectious Diseases Initiative at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law, which is also at Georgetown University Law Center. And in that role, I oversee the Institute's Hepatitis Policy Project, which focuses on national hepatitis C law and policy issues. And I am also work with the Institute's Addiction and Public Policy Initiative, where I work on projects that address the intersection of incidence and prevalence of infectious diseases, such as hepatitis C and HIV and the nation's substance use and injection drug use epidemic. And I am calling in from Washington, DC. Excellent. It is a pleasure to have you both here and to tap into your knowledge among these different topics. And so we are going to be discussing this paper, but for those of us who haven't had a chance to read it yet, Prashasti, can you give us a quick summary of what was in the paper? Yes. So we were energized to write this paper and draw connections between the function of the carceral apparatus and viral hepatitis elimination, something that has not been explored yet, but is extremely important to consider, especially as there is strong national support for viral hepatitis elimination. And we are continuing to see this deep reckoning of truth with the history and the function of the carceral apparatus. And what I mean by that is jails, prisons, and other institutions of punishment. We know through stories and research that this apparatus plays a critical role in increasing the risk of hepatitis C or HCV transmission, both within and outside of correctional facilities, and in also exposing incarcerated people to other chronic illnesses. So given this harmful structure, we wanted to create a resource to expand our thinking on why hepatitis C or HCV elimination efforts should resist using jails or prisons as intervention points, and instead, adopt an abolitionist principle to prioritize decarceration and community care. At the end of the day, our main goal or argument is that HCV rates cannot be changed or eliminated if we cannot meaningfully reduce incarceration rates and our reliance on the carceral apparatus. 
and reallocating funds from this apparatus to community-based prevention efforts will bolster elimination efforts for hepatitis C and also improve overall societal outcomes. Fantastic. This is a super exciting paper. And you're talking about here the strong national support and really breaking down both of these systems and how they are intertwined and both operate in this way that is exposing folks to some negative outcomes. But in order to decrease both of these, Sonia, I want to kind of talk about what is this goal? What's the greater goal for reducing and ending hepatitis C? Where are we trying to end up? So the World Health Organization, or the WHO, has set global viral hepatitis elimination goals to be achieved by 2030. And the United States has adopted these goals as part of the Viral Hepatitis National Strategic Plan. And among these goals for hepatitis elimination, and what we mean by elimination is to reduce and eliminate viral hepatitis, particularly hepatitis A, B, and C, as significant public health threats, so to greatly reduce their prevalence within the population by 2030. And so some of the benchmarks for this goal are to reduce rates of new infections for hepatitis C by 90% by 2030, and to achieve a cure rate for hepatitis C of 80% by 2030. And so in order to achieve these goals, many of the jurisdictions here in the United States, mostly on the state level, have or are in the process of creating comprehensive elimination strategies in order to create the ecosystem and the infrastructure needed to achieve these goals. And some of the priority and interventions include greatly increasing opportunities for testing for hepatitis C so that more people are aware of their status, as well as to create mechanisms to get people into treatment to receive the curative drugs that are available to cure hepatitis C and to make sure that the optimal number of people successfully complete treatment and achieve cure because these are the ways that we are going to reduce the rates of new transmission and achieve those reduced rates of the virus here in the United States by greatly reducing the opportunity for new transmission. And so what we are seeing as part of these strategies is the creation of improved networks within communities, within jurisdictions of healthcare outreach and services in order to reach those priority populations most greatly affected by hepatitis C. So currently in the United States, those populations are people who use and inject drugs because hepatitis C is a bloodborne infectious disease. And particularly with injection drug use, there is a higher rate of potential for transmission if people share syringes and needles in order to inject drugs, as well as some other behaviors that may increase their risk. There is also a higher risk of hepatitis C infection and transmission amongst the, quote, baby boomer population. So those who were born between 1945 and 1965 during a time where the health community was not aware that hepatitis C even existed. And so a lot of people within that cohort were affected by hepatitis C and largely unaware of their status for a very significant amount of time. So really ramping up efforts to 
identify new cases and get them treated within those priority populations as well as within the community in general are among the elimination priorities. And in doing so, shifting the priority towards creating within the communities more opportunities for these priority populations to get the care they need. So that looks like greater opportunities for testing of people who use and inject drugs in environments where they engage. So within syringe services programs where they may go for some healthcare services to receive clean, sterile drug injection equipment, behavioral health centers where they may go to seek recovery services for their substance use disorder. So expanding access to interventions for hepatitis C in more places, including non-traditional health settings, are some of the strategies that we are seeing to promote these and to achieve these elimination goals. Awesome, Sonia. So it sounds like there's a lot of goals for us in the next 10 years in order to achieve what we want to achieve in terms of reducing and ending hepatitis C. But I believe in the summary of the paper, we're talking about you're drawing some connections that haven't been previously examined. And so as all of these plans to decrease hepatitis C are being made on the national and smaller levels, how is the carceral apparatus playing into this? Can you tell me a little bit more about how the purpose of the carceral apparatus is actually to promote these health inequities? So when we're speaking of the carceral apparatus, we're not just speaking of the facilities where people accused of or convicted of a crime are held, but we're also speaking about the landscape of laws and policies used to accuse and convict people of crimes. And when we say that this apparatus promotes health inequities, we're talking about it in a couple of contexts. First, we're talking about this historical context and the historical framework of laws and policies that have existed here in the United States that has largely ignored the role of health inequities and health disparities in leading people into finding themselves on the wrong side of the law and embroiled within the criminal justice system, as well as the history of the carceral apparatus itself neglecting and largely ignoring its obligation to provide adequate health care to those that are held within correctional facilities throughout history. And so I'll use substance use kind of as the example that I will use throughout this because of its correlation to hepatitis C and the high rates of hepatitis C that we see both within the community as well as within the carceral apparatus. And so when I speak to kind of the ignoring of health disparities and health factors by the carceral apparatus in the context of drug use, if we look back throughout history, go back to the 1980s and the 1990s, where the law within the United States as related to drug use was a, quote, war on drugs. So there were very stringent laws created that provided harsh penalties, not only to those who dealt and trafficked in drugs, but also those who were users of drugs. Many of these people found themselves facing very large, very long prison sentences as a result of just being a drug user and not even in the business of trafficking 
of drugs. And what that created was the social norm around drug use being purely a criminal justice issue and really ignoring the link of the healthcare aspect of substance use, the fact that people who use drugs are often just that in and of itself is a health issue. It is a behavioral health issue. And it, oftentimes it may have been precipitated by an underlying mental health issue or an underlying social issue within their environment or within their home or within their community that may have led them into a substance use disorder that in turn led them into the criminal justice system. And so for decades, policies such as the war on drugs largely ignored those health aspects and just purely focused on the criminal aspect of just making any interaction with drugs just a crime. And that created, or what it didn't create within the community were spaces where people who were engaged in substance use could receive services for recovery, could receive services to deal with some of their underlying mental health or physical health challenges that may have led them into substance use as a form of outlet or relief. A lot of times, many of these people who found themselves on the other side of the laws that related to substance use, even before they entered into the carceral apparatus, either were uninsured or underinsured and did not have the means to begin with to receive healthcare services that they need or other social welfare services that they may need. And so they ended up, you know, many of them turning into a substance use disorder or substance use distribution as a means to address the disparities that they faced. And what the carceral apparatus did during that time with these laws and policies was just pretty much create a vicious circle of poverty and incarceration within many communities with many people who already face many disparities and disadvantages, particularly communities of color. And not only that, but by ignoring the health aspects of substance use disorder, both as a behavioral health and a mental health issue, as well as those collateral health issues that go along with substance use disorder, for example, exposure to infections such as hepatitis C, HIV, and other illnesses, by ignoring that and just really focusing on the criminal justice aspect of it, the carceral apparatus did in fact promote these health inequities by not creating the infrastructure within the communities to help support these people before they became justice involved. And then once they do enter into a correctional facility, the carceral apparatus further perpetuated health inequities by failing to meet their obligation to provide adequate health care to those held in correctional facilities that they are required to do under the law. And that law is the Eighth Amendment against cruel and unusual punishment. In 1976, the Supreme Court held in the Estelle v. Gamble case that because those held uh, in correctional facilities do not have the means to provide for their health care for themselves because they're being detained, it is the requirement, it is the obligation of those who hold them to provide adequate health care for a serious health care need that they may face. However, many correctional facilities do not provide this adequate health care because, again, the focus is largely on being held in corrections as being a punitive issue. And there is 
far too little credence given to the health issues and the societal issues that may have led people into justice involvement to begin with. And so again, just in the context of hepatitis C, many of these people come from communities that are under-resourced and that if they knew that they had health issues, they did not have the means to address them. And then once they enter into the correctional facilities, their health issues either continue to go ignored or might even get exacerbated and get worse due to the overall conditions that they find themselves in while they're being held in custody. And so when we look at this, we see, like I said, the Estelle v. Gamble case was in 1976. It is 2022. So correctional facilities have had more than enough time to address their deficiencies in order to step up and really create the systems that they needed to provide the health care that those that they hold require. But this has not been the case because in the United States, we continue to perpetuate this really negative connotation with those held in corrections, with people in incarceration as being undeserving of receiving too many resources. They did a crime, they're there to be punished, and they should just receive the minimum required. Again, largely ignoring all of the other collateral health issues that come into play. And so Part of the analysis that we did with our paper is to kind of say enough is enough. We've seen that the carceral apparatus is just not going to step up and do what they need in order to provide the adequate health care. So we need to take a step back and look and see, okay, can the resources used to funnel people into the carceral apparatus be better allocated from a public health perspective to improving the community health landscape in an effort to, one, promote overall better public health, and two, provide an environment that might even keep many of these people from becoming justice involved. If people are able to engage in better mental health and behavioral health, then maybe they will not engage in substance use or they will not engage in crimes as a result of their substance use or as a result of their mental health that lead them into the correctional health system that is likely only going to make their bad situation worse. And so, like I said, the carceral apparatus has had more than enough time to meet its obligations. It has not. And so it is time to reimagine perhaps taking a more preventive approach and creating a system within our communities that support the needs of more people to avoid engaging in the correctional system altogether. That is super fascinating. And I'm hearing kind of this social issue and this war on drugs issue where we're taking folks from underserved, under-resourced communities and then funneling them into this carceral apparatus in which they now have even fewer resources to deal with these pre-existing conditions that are also not resourced in a way that's following along with their obligations. These carceral apparatuses are obligated to provide health care in order to help folks experience health in these holding spaces, and yet they're not doing that. And so these are some changes that I'm hearing need to happen within the system as it exists. But Prashasti, where do we go from here? Are there some bigger actions? What are the practice and policy implications of adopting this abolitionist perspective? The main takeaway that we want people to absorb and act upon is to join these broader calls for decarceration and abolition 
And we, in our paper, talk about how doing so is absolutely critical for creating a systemic response to hepatitis C or viral hepatitis elimination. As Sonia kind of talked about, and we also talk about this in our paper, the carceral apparatus is and will always be fundamentally structured to promote health inequities. And its allegiance, as we talked about through the policies that exist here in the United States, is to maintain social control or to establish punishment and not to take care of people's health and well-being. So our efforts to eliminate hepatitis C then need to exist outside of jails or prisons. And we emphasize that this is a gradual process, that ultimately we want to limit our reliance on jails or prisons and instead invest in these other life-affirming institutions, such as strong health policies and strong health systems, as Sonia was mentioning. There's always this critical question and tension between providing immediate help and systemic change, and offering treatments at jails can be profoundly necessary, but it is important to think about the mechanism in which we offer that support. And I'm reminded of Maryam Kaba's work and words in questioning ourselves when we do this kind of work in if our efforts are quote unquote reformist reforms, that is, are we building something new that will perpetuate inequities? Are we legitimizing systems that are harmful to health? And if the answer to both of those questions is yes, then that is not harm reduction. But we can engage in harm reduction while challenging the existence of such harmful systems and by actively engaging in building the infrastructure for new and equitable systems. And that is what we kind of talk about in our paper and expand our thinking on in how to move forward. I also would like to add that there's a reason that Black people are criminalized and overrepresented in correctional facilities, especially as we've been talking today, those who inject drugs. And it is directly tied to the history of creating a war on drugs and the perpetual and pervasive structural racism and anti-Blackness that we see in our policies and systems. So from a practice point of view, to address this sustainably and structurally, we need to adopt abolition as an ethic and as a practice, as we have been discussing today, and invest in community resources from the get-go. This is critical to stop the cycle of criminalization that we've been talking about that then creates and funnels people into carceral settings and perpetuates health and social inequalities. And community prevention services provide us with this upstream approach to reach justice-involved populations for hepatitis C screening and treatment before they even enter the correctional system. And decarceration efforts can also expand our harm reduction strategies that research continues to show is life-saving. So that's where we need to go. And that's what the practice point of view of our paper is also about. Awesome, Prashasti. And it sounds like there are a lot of ways for us to go and approach this, as you said, very upstream and downstream approaches that are all going to be necessary to get us where we need to be. And some great questions we can ask ourselves as we work in this practice to make sure that we are not also participating in these systems of an injustice. So, Sonia, can you tell me a little bit about maybe what's currently happening or where we might be able to go in the current state of the world? So, as I mentioned, the current system is not working. 
the carcer apparatus is not meeting its obligation to provide meaningful and adequate health care for those who they hold. And so it is time to shift that power away from them. They have shown that they cannot meet their responsibility. However, we as a society, we as a people, we still have a responsibility to these people who are just as involved in health and corrections. And I think that's an important narrative as well, because this, you know, 40 plus, almost 50 year neglect of this obligation to provide adequate health care within the carceral system has been allowed to perpetuate just because of those societal beliefs around people in jail are, are not worthy of, people in prisons are not worthy of us spending our money on and providing health care for them when there are people who are not criminally involved who need these services as well. And so by breaking that narrative and in many ways taking that power to perpetuate that narrative away from the carceral apparatus is what is needed to really create this paradigm shift because it is important as part of addressing the fact that the health of people held within the carceral apparatus does not just affect them, it does not just affect the carceral apparatus, it affects all of us because the overwhelming majority of people who are held in jails and prisons are going to return to their communities and with them, they're going to return to the environments that may have created their health challenges to begin with or that may make them worse. Or in the case of something like H. CV, hepatitis C, which is a communicable disease, they will bring that back into the community with them and promote additional transmission. And not only that, allowing the existing system to perpetuate actually allows the carceral apparatus to continue to punish people who have been victims of historic law and policies that have created health inequities within the United States, particularly as Prashasti mentioned, amongst people of color here in this country. And so by shifting into a more community-based approach, you are creating a system of autonomy where more people have the means to protect their own health and well-being. And for many, this will allow them to avoid justice involvement and engagement in the criminal justice system altogether. If people are able to receive meaningful health care for their substance use disorder, for their mental health disorder, then maybe they will not resort to crimes or acts of violence or substance use, which is illegal, and that could lead them into justice involvement. And so one of the easiest strategies, one that I want to speak to, is more states expanding Medicaid coverage that will provide healthcare coverage for a greater number of people who are of lower income that also encompass the people who are at greatest risk of becoming just as involved in many communities by allowing them to have access to this care beforehand. And maybe they can, again, receive the services that they need to keep them from coming into contact with the criminal justice system. Related to Medicaid, also, even in states where there is Medicaid expansion, many people who find themselves justice involved and detained either in jail or prison actually have Medicaid at the time of their arrest and engagement in the criminal justice system. But there is a policy within the Medicaid program called Medicaid Inmate Exclusion Policy, 
which states that if you have Medicaid, the minute you become justice involved, so even if you were just arrested, not convicted of anything, but just accused and arrested, you are expelled from the Medicaid rolls. And there are some states that have addressed this through law and policy changes. But the reason that I bring this up and that it is a concern is that, for example, if somebody is just accused of a crime and later released from jail without ever being sentenced, they are returning to their community, but now they are returning to community without their health care. And it may be a bit cumbersome or overwhelming for them to even reinstate their health care. And so that is a concern. So again, that could lead them to not receiving the mental health services that they need or receiving behavioral health services that they need or any sort of services that they need. And that is just another way that the carceral apparatus is actually creating health inequities because these people actually had access to health care and this policy takes it away from them. So there are some bills currently that have been brought forth by members of Congress to address this issue. There is the Supporting the Humane Correctional Healthcare Act that was introduced in May of 2021 by Representative Ann Custer from New Hampshire that would effectively repeal the Medicaid inmate exclusion policy and allow Medicaid recipients to retain their healthcare throughout their justice involvement. There is also the Equity and Pre-Child Medicaid Coverage Act, which was introduced in 2019 by Senator Edward Markey of Massachusetts that would not allow Medicaid programs to expel people held in pretrial detention. So you've been accused but not yet sentenced of any crime, you're just kind of being held like in county jail. It would not allow state Medicaid programs to automatically expel those people from the Medicaid rolls until such time that they are convicted. And even once they are convicted, they would then only have their Medicaid suspended while they are in the correctional facility rather than expelled. So that way, when they do return to the community, which again, the overwhelming majority of people held in corrections do return, there is a seamless transition for them to get their care reinstated. So then again, they're able to kind of seamlessly feel empowered to engage in accessing health care and taking care of their health and well-being. Another reason why this is important and a good example to use and a good reason to use kind of the Medicaid system for this is because if more people have access to Medicaid, if more people know how to utilize it in meaningful ways to be able to preserve their health, this is conducive to creating an infrastructure within communities to provide these services because there is coverage and there will be more people needing and engaging in these services for, for example, behavioral health, for hepatitis C interventions, for mental health services through either, you know, reallocating the funding from the carceral apparatus and the lack of healthcare resources being utilized there into the community through these measures, through better expansion of Medicaid services. And also, again, if you look at this from a preventive and a proactive perspective, less resources may be needed in the long term by the carceral apparatus because if more people are receiving the meaningful care that they need on the front end, there will be less justice involvement. There will be less people finding themselves 
engaged in the criminal justice system because they are able to better address their mental and social and behavioral health needs on the front end and effectively able to avoid engagement in the criminal justice system. So those are just a couple of the examples that I wanted to bring forward, just particularly as it relates to improving hepatitis C outcomes. I go into a lot more depth related to the use of Medicaid and justice-involved populations as a strategy for hepatitis C elimination in a forthcoming paper that I will soon publish called Expanding Medicaid Coverage in Correctional Facilities and Throughout Community Reentry as a Strategy to Promote Hepatitis C Elimination. And so that'll be available on the O'Neill Institute website where I really talk a bit further more about the need to really reimagine healthcare within the carceral system as a key component to hepatitis C elimination. Yeah, Sonia, I'm hearing a lot of issues with this continuity of care and this breaking up of that care around their trial. And as you were mentioning, even before sentencing, and then if they do reenter the communities, that there's still this gap in their care. And sounds like it's super important. And I do want to shout out an upcoming paper that you have on this to talk about this growing momentum around this issue. The paper is expanding Medicaid coverage in correctional facilities and throughout community reentry as a strategy to promote HCV elimination. So I do really appreciate your not only calling out of these issues and the places where we can intervene, but then also continuing that research and deepening our understanding of these connections. So thank you both for that commitment to the issue. It's very awesome to see. As we close out here, I just want to say thank you both so much for your knowledge and your expertise on these topics and giving us your time today. So thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.